Okay, uh, I'm recording, so... I am recording. I'm not recording. Okay, if you could, that would be useful. Right, why can I not find GarageBand? It's not opening. Why do we have this every week with her? With her? <laughs> <laughs> with her. Every Says week. Says you, flipping Bill Gates, whatever he's called. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of the guy, Steve Jobs, that's what I was looking for. <laughs> I really hope this has been recorded. Oh, there's a bear machine. There you go. Right, thank you. Now we're in a pod. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Are you recording? Are you all recording? Yeah, of course. All recording. Right. Helen, take it away, please. Right, let's go. Hello and welcome to another Manchester United podcast. I'm Helen Evans. Joined, as always, by Maisie and Sam. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi, mate. All good, thank you. How are you guys? All good. Why are you laughing, Sam? I'm still laughing at the Bill Gates comment. <laughs> I don't know where you're going to put that in, Task. <laughs> I did mean to say Steve Jobs, but it still works. Bill Gates. Both fine and very funny. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. See so, yeah, yeah, I am funny. Enjoyed that a lot. I am funny. Um, <laughs> I am funny. <laughs> I, am, I am funny. There you go. You heard it. I am funny. Uh, that's a throwback to a few weeks ago because t- didn't Johnny tell you you weren't funny? Then you turned up before yeah, we sat down with Harry Maguire. Yeah, we sat down with Harry and you were like, guys, am I funny? Am I funny? <laughs> that was we, a private chat. Yeah, and we all just very awkwardly were like, you're very nice, Helen. Sam, you did say I was funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have we had a good week? Maisie, I think you've had a good week because you've got a new juicer. I have. So that's a good week for you. A little trip to Costco, as you do. Mm-hmm. Oh, Can't yeah, spend our yeah. money anywhere, so... Have you still got my 48 cans of Diet Coke? 60 cans I've got. There's oh, an 60. offer. Is this a real thing? 60 di- cans of Diet Coke. There are other drinks available. They're, they're, in the, they're in the back of my car. Yeah. Yes. Helen, the irony of you saying other drinks are available and I've literally never seen you drink anything <laughs> other than Diet Coke. No, that's true. <laughs> Just for the listener, that, right. I felt that was appropriate. I, I'm not sure you know that other drinks are available. Maisie took a trip to Costco. Three weeks ago, yeah, they've been in the car since. So I do have uh, a new juicer and 60 cans of Diet Coke for Helen. Yeah. That's a serious balance in life. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I got my juicer because I thought I'd do dry January, which I've done. I've got through dry January, which is great. Have you, Maisie? I didn't realise that. Well done. Did hear your beer machine earlier, though. Yeah. Still going. Obviously, that's still rolling. Mm -hmm. Well, as I said, dry January is now finished because we're into February, (laughs) so the beer machine is back on. Yeah. Yeah. Today's guest, guys, somebody that... Let me start that again. Who's playing the bongos? That's Willow, that, making a breakfast. Willow now is on the podcast. Come say hello, Wills. No. Making her breakfast. Come, on. Come, here. Come here. Come here. She doesn't want to. Come say hello to Hells and the guys. Hi. Hi, Willow. What are you having? She probably can't hear us. What are you having, she says? Cocoa Pops. Cocoa Pops. Great choice. Make the milk go chocolatey. Good choice. Noisy for a podcast, though. Okay. There you go. Sorry, Lottie's just coming in a roller bed. She's just making her way out from the printer. Well, we are in lockdown. I think all these things are fine. She got rollerblades on. Yes. For like four <laughs> hours today. Right, let me start that again. On today's pod, guys, is someone that we all know. Sam, you and I have worked alongside him at MUTV. Yeah. And Maisie, you will have known him from the youth team when you were in the first team yes. at United. Mm-hmm. Bojan Jordic who we know is going to have a great story. He's a great talker, that's fair to say, Maisie. He is, yeah. Yeah, we might not get much much in because we'll just <laughs> give him the one question and he'll go on for an hour about it, but hey-ho. That's the best kind of guest. Yeah. Um, tell us a bit about Bojan, what you remember of him. Uh, very, very talented footballer. 
Used to play on the left wing, great left foot. Just an all-round nice guy, as, as you would expect. I'm looking forward to hearing about his youth growing up in Yugoslavia. That's going to be um, interesting to hear because I think we had Nemanja on and uh, Berber being brought up in um, warm-torn areas. So mm-hmm. should be really interesting. Be very interesting. He actually did win the Jimmy Murphy Player of the Year award at the age of 18, but only went on to make two competitive appearances yeah. for Manchester United, I think. Yeah. Did that surprise you at the time? I think it's difficult when you've got gigs in front of you, but the young kids coming through as well, very, very talented. But I mean, Bojan was very talented, but I think he got a little bit distracted one way or another. Listen, the only way we'll, we'll know is, is by speaking to him, but mm-hmm. he was a very, very talented footballer. And I think when he looks back at his career, maybe he'll have regrets. Yeah, but there's only one way to find out, isn't there? Yeah. Here's Bojan Jordic. Look at this. Oh, ultimate professional. F*** hell, Bo. There he is. Amazing lockdown, eh? <laughs> where are you? Stockholm, just in my studio. Studio where? In Sweden, in Stockholm. The one we use sometimes to do the Zoom interviews with the PL players. Ah, right. <laughs> Everybody's at home in England. You should all move to Stockholm. It sounds nice. Yeah, yeah, it is, actually. So are you in, are you in the studio? Yeah, at home. No, no, I'm in the studio. What, what do you mean, at home? How's that his house? He just has that next to his bedroom, that studio. I know, yeah, I have a studio in my bedroom. It's easier for me as well. It's easier to concentrate. Otherwise, if I'm home, I have to do millions of things as well. So, Bozan, you're the most professional person we've had on. I'm just glad you had me on as well, you know what I mean? You must have, like, struggling with guests, so you call me. You're right, 78th. <laughs> no, you must have struggled because if Danny Weber was on, then you were struggling for guests. <laughs> it was actually Danny Weber who said, get Bojan on. <laughs> I promised Task about six months ago. I said, yeah, listen, I'll come back to you on Monday. So it's been six months, but now it's a Monday. That's true. You didn't specify which Monday. Yeah. <laughs> can you see us, Bojan? Yeah, I can see you. Oh, you can, can you see, see us. Me? Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can yeah. see you. It's just a bit of a strange one when you just look at a camera and speak to people. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just used to like having people around me when I speak. But I, know. <laughs> I think I manage. I'm happy anyway in Stockholm. We've not had that. We've not had a lockdown. We have restrictions in shopping malls and restaurants, but everything is still open and you can still move freely. You know, what I mean, if I want to have a coffee, I can go get a coffee. If I want to have a lunch, I go have lunch. That sounds lovely. We have not. We ne- never had the lockdown since March. Since this this started here in Sweden, we never never been on a lockdown. No way. Anyway, let's go. Come on. Bojan, welcome to the United Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad that you're having me on. I'm nothing to do, so I may as well <laughs> chat to you as well. Guest 78, so we eventually got to you. Yeah, 78. You're struggling for guests, so you call me. Like, yeah, listen, I know this guy in Stockholm. He can chat for fun, so just call Bojan. <laughs> 78. Unbelievable. <laughs> How are things? Because we're all sat at home. Um, I happen to know that Maisie currently is in his pants and has no trousers on. <laughs> but you look very smart and you're in a studio. So how's life for you in Stockholm? As a guest 78, I have to put my actually shirt and a suit yeah. on. I have to look good. If I chat <laughs> so at least I have to look good. But it's good. I'm just in my studio here. As you know, in Sweden, we have not had the lockdowns or the same restrictions and people in, in the United Kingdom. So in a way, I'm glad I can put my shirt on. I can have a walk, come to my work, record this and go back home again. So it's easier to cope with stuff than chatting to yourself and your walls at home. When you say my studio, you really love referring to it as your studio. 
Uh, it's not my studio at home. It's I the studio where I work. But it, no, no, it just looks good anyway. I can you say that. Listen, I'm just studio. in my studio. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. But I see it as a Premier League. I see it as my studio, you know, because I see myself being the best pundit. So I said, it's my studio. Well, tell us what you do on a day-to-day basis from your studio at the moment. <laughs> Uh, I work as a I work as a pundit uh, for Swedish Premier League and Champions League, so it's like Sky and BT in England, but here we are called like Via Play, so that's where I work. So we have the rights to 2028 when it comes to the Premier League. So hopefully I have my job a couple of more years if I perform. Oh, wow. Nice. Do you, uh, do you enjoy it? I love it. I love it. Uh, the thing is as well, the bosses are good to me here because I can just be myself. So hopefully the boss won't get fired. Otherwise I will get fired because I'm quite, quite free spoken. You know, mm-hmm. for me, it doesn't matter how many games or how many minutes you've played in big clubs. You, you, you still see football in a way. You're still entitled to have your opinion. If people that never kicked a ball have an opinion on football, why shouldn't I? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So your job now involves talking about football and often specifically about Manchester United. We'll get on to your life and career in a moment. But what was and I guess is your relationship to United? I love the club. Doesn't matter if I was born in former Yugoslavia. Doesn't matter if I grew up in Sweden. Manchester United for me, it's always been a special place. I loved Manchester United for many, many years, not just from 99 when I came. Uh, Red Star Belgrade is my biggest passion, is my biggest love. And you know yourself uh, what happened when that uh, tragic... Uh, ninth or day in Munich, uh, Manchester United played Red Star Belgrade on the 6th of February 58. And that day I was born on the 6th of February 82. Uh, so following Red Star, we always have a memorial every year to actually honor the victims of the Munich disaster. So United has always been in my family as well, and it's club I followed and played on the left. When I was younger, Giggsy came through and he was one of my big heroes. So United, I was a United supporter before the good old days, you know, before the treble, Amazie's picture when I was climbing over the gaffer and all that. So I love United. <laughs> love that. Yeah, it's very well said. Very well said. Do you know where I'm going to start though, Bojan, if you don't mind? Mm-hmm. I remember having a conversation with you a couple of years ago about your name. Mm -hmm. So you're probably sick listening to this conversation, but just for anybody listening, you are (laughs) are actually called Boyan, but I'm sure when you came to United, people just said Bojan. Was it Maisie? Yeah, you know, but... Or am I making that up? Helen, it's Boyan. (laughs) It's always been Boyan, you know, it's like this Bojan, he's a Manchester guy. He's from Manchester, you know, Bojan, all right, Boge, all right, Boge. (laughs) It was like that. (laughs) But when you came to Manchester, I think I remember you telling me that you just gave up with people trying to call you Boyan because everybody just said Bojan. Yeah, everybody did. And when I tried to say that in the cantina Carrington to the gaffer, he just looked at me and said, no, you're Bojan. I said, no, it's Boyan, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then I knew that I didn't make it really. Listen, if I was a proper first team player, I think he would know my name. He would say like, yeah, it's Boyan. But because he was just like, listen, you just play. Shut up and go and play. You're Bojan. And everybody just called me Bojan. Oh, I feel really bad now because we've done our introduction and we've all said Bojan. Yeah. No, Boyan is good. Sorry. Listen, I'm, I'm getting used to it as well. Even I, when I come to like Old Trafford or Manchester, I get I get a shock when people call me Boyan. It's like when Webbs, Danny Webber sometimes tries to, it doesn't sound right because yeah. all through my years, everybody just called me Bo or Bojan, a Bojan, Boj. <laughs> <laughs> who who is this guy? Who's Boge? Who's Boge? <laughs> uh, it's a lot like Ollie, because uh, Ollie's Ollie's name um, we found out for sure talking to him is Ula. Yeah, Ola Gunnar. Yeah, and then but everyone calls him Ollie. 
Yeah, Beth, listen, you just go with it. That's the way we pronounce it, that's it, yeah. <laughs> Maisie knows, that Maisie knows. I don't know that that's okay. I don't know if we can just decide this is what we're going to call you and it not be someone's name. I don't think that's all right. Bo is all right. No, but when you're in a dressing room, that's the way it is. <laughs> I was just happy they knew some, some parts of my name, Maisie. I was just happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when Veron came, everyone called him Sebastian or Juan, but then yeah. he became Seba. Because that's his nickname. Seba was easier. Yeah. yeah. But now he's, he's Bo. So it's either Bo or Bojan. So we'll go with you Bo go, then. Listen, <laughs> Bo, yeah. Listen, Bo, let's go, back, let's go back to your early days growing up yeah. in Yugoslavia. What was that yeah. like? Amazing. I never, I never spoke about that, you know, because I always thought that people won't be that interested in that. Well, you, this, is, this is why we've got you on here. Yeah, I know, because the thing is... You, everybody speaks about your career, about your failures. You were the you were the one that was gonna make the grade. Nothing happened. They look at your career, uh, but the thing is, they always forget there was a person behind that. You know, football has never mm-hmm. defined me. Uh, my life defined me. Football for me was a hobby. Football for me was something I loved just to play, not to train, not to run. But it was just like a free zone in my life, because I was born on the sixth of February in Belgrade. But I grew up in Sarajevo with my grandparents. And in 1992, the war came to Bosnia. The war came to Sarajevo. And uh, it was not a lockdown like people are complaining now about. You know, people are complaining about restrictions or not be able to go out after 8 o'clock. Uh, we're talking about bombs. We're talking about grenades. We're talking about relatives dying. We're talking about uh, my friends getting shot. Uh, seeing that when you're 10, 11 years old, no child should experience that, you know. And of course, uh, when, you, when you get older, then you start realizing how tough that was. Uh, because, for example, uh, when you're 10 years old, uh, you're holding your granddad's hand and people are counting down on a street, on a crossing, three, two, one, and then you run. You run so you won't get shot by the snipers down top of the buildings. So imagine that, being 10 years old and seeing shots, people falling, and you make the street. <laughs> for me then, I was with my superhero. It was my granddad. So I didn't think about it as much. It was just like a run. Me now, I'm 39 on the 6th of February in a few days, and I would say to you, I would be scared now running with my son or with my daughter over that street. But it was, it was shit, Maisie. You know, it was, it was shit in a way because I lost oh, so many can I, people. Can I just stop you there? Yeah. Why would you run across a road with snipers around? Uh, you, need to come back. You, you need you know, you needed you needed to come back to your area uh, you needed to come and uh, buy bread or milk uh, because uh, bosnia was a split country bosnia you have uh, three types of religions you have serbs the christian orthodox you have uh, croats the catholics and then you have uh, bosnia muslims uh, so sarajevo was a split city and uh, people were taking parts of town so there was like borders inside a town so on one street is a Serbian corner, on the other street was the Bosnian corner. And to buy milk, to buy bread, if you're stuck in that area, you have to run to make it. Or if you're not at home, if you're at the neighbor's house and the grenades start falling, you had to run just so you can make your house, so you can come home. <sighs> so it's, it's, it's crazy, you know, it's like crazy scenes and people see to me, but how can, you, how can you be normal after all that? You know, when you're still at nighttime, sometimes you have nightmares about things you've seen. 
you wake up uh, you all sweaty. How can you just be a normal person? Or People never asked me, but I, I, I was never prepared to talk about it because uh, I was always like defending the way my career has gone. Mm. And sometimes I was so frustrated, so angry, even with people here in Sweden or people in England, you know, they just saw you as a footballer. But it was my, that was my work, you know, footballer, footballer. But I never wanted to be defined that way. But, you know, when you, not, when you don't speak about it, nobody will ever ask you about it either. So you just like you just like a time bomb, you know, like you know yourself, Maze, you you met me so many times. I'm always close of like exploding. Even mm. if I'm more controlled now, when I played, I could be annoying. Uh, my attitude was on a different level. All depends if I, if I drank, if I ate, if I slept. So I was like a, from Monday to I was like a roller coaster. During the years in United, it was a roller coaster. Are you happy to talk about that part of your life with us today? Yeah, it's the first time I, I spoke to Matt as well, and I, I said to him, it's tough, you know, because I, I'm always uncomfortable speaking about things that actually affect me. And w- when I speak slowly, then you know I'm trying to hold back, uh, you know, like not just tears, but the anger inside me that my country was split, uh, had to leave again, learn a new language, uh, learn to get accepted for having black hair in Sweden, you know, become one of them, uh, always trying to be better i always tried to so they could actually see that i was trying but it was always much harder work than everybody else which is understandable if you come to a country as a foreigner you have to learn the language you have to work hard you have to be better in school you have to be better on the pitch you have to show them in that way and then of course everything else comes with it but you know like uh, for example you know like when you when you get a call when you're 10 years old and you see your see your mom just break or your grandma uh, because my auntie got shot because she was locking her house door from a sniper you know my cousins losing their mother because she was just gonna lock the door and she got shot by somebody that just didn't have nothing better to do you know just it's like life story or oh seeing one of your schoolmates uh, get blown up to pieces because of a grenade felt when he was just gonna buy bread you know it, <laughs> what can I tell? What can I tell you more? Of course, it, d- it defines you. It makes you angry. I was just an angry kid, but I was an angry kid that had a mission that I was going to take care of my family. That I was going to take care of my parents. You know, like still t- until today, my parents, my grandparents, my auntie, the ones that are alive, they live better than I do. They have better places than I do because I said every little pound that I will earn of football because of the talent, I will give that to them. Mm. I didn't give a f about myself. I didn't even take care of myself. I had I had massive massive problems of handling my attitude, you know. So it was a, it was a fight when I came to Sweden when I was almost 11, all the way till I was 17 when I came to the Cliff Training Ground for the first time. Who did you move to Sweden with? Because you you mentioned that you grew up with your grandparents. Was your dad playing football at this stage? Yeah, he was. So he was he was in Sweden at the time. Uh, so when we when we decided to refugee it was through we had contacts. Uh, we we left our we left our apartments uh, in Sarajevo in the center of town. We lived in the outskirts in the Serbian part, which was close to the airport. And through the contacts, uh, we de- we decided. Uh, oh, my mom decided that we had to take that navy plane uh, through the connections we had to Belgrade, if that was possible. But that was also a risk because we had to take that bus through a part that the bus would get shot at. I mean, it's crazy. It's like talking th- talking through a movie, but I experienced this. You're lying on the bus floor, the bus gets shot 
on the way to the airport. They closed down to the airport and we had to sleep with no food, with no nothing. It was me, my little sister Maya, my mother and my auntie. We slept at the airport for two days until it was, we were good to go with the Navy plane to Belgrade. So that was, that was my story and that was our, she wanted to give us a better life. Uh, probably when I speak to her now, she knew this was gonna, this was this was this was gonna go on. So she had to take that risk. So we came to Belgrade. We stayed there for a month, and then we came asylum seekers, huh? You call them like that mm -hmm. to Stockholm and to that airport. And it was the biggest queue you've seen in your life. So your dad stayed in Belgrade at the time? No, my dad was in in Sweden. He was in Stockholm. He, he was in. He was in there. Yeah. He finished his career in Sweden and lucky for us that he stayed here. So it was easier for us uh, to be like put, put together. And my sister was born in 1985 in Sweden as well. So it was lucky in that way because you could easily been turned away because it was so many they wanted to come to Sweden. So you felt like one of the lucky families, I suppose? Yeah, it was. It was. We were one of the lucky families, especially when you when you like when you when you wake up and you can actually go out and play football. You know, you can see people. Mm. You can see like you can see the sun. You don't have to be in that. What do you call it? You know, when bombs fall down, you have to run into the like a room. What is it called in English? You know, like you know when when alarm clock a rings and you have to like a, a shelter. Thank you. Bunker. Like a shelter. Yeah, like a bunker. Yeah, like a shelter. So. And then just walking out and just like playing football and having a laugh. But it was never like, it was laughter for a while. But then when you come home, uh, you, see your, you see your mother or your father not be able to reconnect with our relatives down there because the lines were so bad. You know, you, you see them struggling, you see them smoking, you see them not sleeping. So it was, a, it was a tough time. But I was 11, my sister was eight. We were still kids, you know. We didn't realize maybe how tough or hard that was because we had each other, you know. We grew up quite, we, we grew up, when I was 11, I felt like an old man already, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> so you were born in 82, yeah. and the Yugoslavia war started in 1991. So yeah. could you imagine when you were 10, and that was happening, and it was coming to Sarajevo, that that's what your life would be? Because I, I mean, I don't know, but I guess up to the point of being like eight, were you an angry, because you described yourself as being an angry kid, were you an angry kid then? Were you quite content? Because I... Were things more peaceful? Uh, they were peaceful. It was a wonderful country to grow up in. You know, in, in my classroom, we had so many different nationalities that I didn't even know where I was. I was a Yugoslav, you know? And the guy beside me was called Admir, my best friend, but he was a Bosnian Muslim. But we didn't, we didn't know that at the time. I was not going around with the Serbian flag. He was not going around mm. with the Bosnian flag. Mm. We were all from the same country. We were Yugoslavs. That's what we were called. And now we have seven countries out of one after the split. So now it was, it was happy times. You know, we played basketball, played football. Uh, the school was really strict. The grades were up. You know, it was just like, a, it, it was a beautiful time. And... That time, sometimes, even now, when I'm almost 39, I go back to and think, what would my life be like if we still stayed there? We were a happy family, relatives. We didn't have any problems. We could travel. Our passport was of value. We could visit Croatia, Montenegro, all the coastline. But it was our country. It was not like Croatia, Montenegro now. It was just, it was so peaceful that people came from Europe. We had tourists over because people wanted to visit Yugoslavia. They wanted to go out to the coast of Croatia, to Montenegro. We were prospering. And then the war came as a shock for everybody. So still it's still tough. You know, when I go back now to former Yugoslavia, when I go to Serbia, Bosnia, 
I'm a Swede there. I'm a foreigner. But when I came to Sweden, I'm still a foreigner. You know, like the nice thing, where, where is my place? You know, people laugh at me. Here comes our Swede when I come down there. And when I come here, I'm, the, I'm a Serb. You know, so it's like a <laughs> other way around. So I'm still looking for my place somewhere. So you, your actual home place now, Bo, in Yugoslavia, where, yeah. where would that be? What would that be called? Sarajevo. Sarajevo. It's Bosnia. Right. And have you been back yeah, there? Bosnia. Have you been back to see or yeah, where my, you grew my, gran- up? my grandma never wanted to leave. Uh, my granddad, my biggest hero, he passed away two years ago and they never wanted to come to Sweden. They came for a while. We tried to get him over. But he said, No, I was born here, I'm gonna die here. He was stubborn as F, uh, sorry for yeah. my language, but they never wanted to come. So they stayed through the war, during the war, amazing. He stayed, and what he did when they had to escape and leave their flats, what do you do? You just left your apartment. You just ran. You know, you just left everything you built and you ran. And he used to come back through all these zones because he loved me so much and he bought me a Commodore 64, it was called. Yeah. And he had forgotten that in the apartment. So he goes through all of this to get a F-Wing Commodore 64, mm. risks his life just because he knew that I loved that thing so much. And he kept it during all these years. You know, it was just, I don't know. It was just, I wish they used, I wish they came. I wish they came here. Mm. I wish I had them beside me. But every summer I go, except this summer with this Corona bull Yeah. So what about, obviously you've done, you've done your schooling or you're, you're in school. Yeah. Where did you love of football come from? Playing with your mates? Was you good at school? Was you? Yeah, I was. I was re- I'm always telling. I always say I'm, I was the best. No, but I was really good at school. At school was everything. You know, from grade one you were like judged. It was grades from one to five. And if you come home with a three or a four, my granddad would whip me. You know what I mean? It was like, what is this? <laughs> Listen, football comes into the second half. Football should be your hobby. School is important. So I was. I was a good student. But the love for sport is always down there. Even if you go down there now, it doesn't matter what country you visit. Everybody just plays football, basketball. Doesn't matter if it's on the road. Doesn't matter if the uh, if there's nets, if there's goals. If there's yeah. a tree, you put a jacket on, you make a goal. And it's still 2020, 2021. They still do the same thing as I did 30, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Here in Sweden now, kids are so spoiled. It goes, oh, there's no net on this goal. You know, like it's, oh, I have to get the ball if I shoot. You know, like it's these things that are happening to the new generation now. Mm. Like, oh, I cannot play there. I cannot play on this. This is not the new like hybrid grass and all that, like artificial. Everything has to be like the best so they can actually go down and play. Mm. I used to do bicycle kicks in the snow and all that. And football and basketball were my two biggest passions. And of course, with my dad being a player, and he was a big player during the 80s for Red Star Belgrade, everything just like clicked into place. So your dad would... Sorry, let me get this straight. Did you live with your parents in Sarajevo? Or did your dad live in Sweden at that time? Yeah, my dad lived in Sweden. So it was me, my mom, my aunt, uh, granddad, grandma, and my sister. So it was a big, one big happy family. So when, when did your dad leave? Uh, my dad, he left in 80, 85, he left for Sweden so you were, to finish his so career. So you were three-year-old? Amazing, it was a strange, yeah, it was a, it was a strange rule in uh, Yugoslavia at the time. That's because the league was so good in the 80s and beginning of the 90s mm-hmm. that you had to be 29 to leave the country. So you couldn't be a professional player anywhere else until you were 29. And it was the rule of the game. That's because Red Star won the European Cup 91. That's because in the 80s, teams like Red Star Belgrade or Partizan Belgrade, Dinamo Zagreb were that big. Because all the national team players, they played inside their own country. And that rule changed later. And now people are running when they're 14, 15 with all the agents, you know. 
Money talks these days, but I'm not saying it was better before, but I don't know. I, I like them rules better than it's now. Was that tough then, Bo? Your dad leaving at three-year-old? Yeah, it, it was the, the thing, it was, of course, it was tough. You only yeah. saw him when he came back in the summers or in the winter breaks. He was still my role model, you know. Uh, for me and my sister, he was our father. But I was happy that I grew up with my granddad or grandma, my mother, auntie. So I, I never missed him in that way. But now when I think back as well that everybody else played with their dad's football, I went with my granddad mm. in a way, you know. Mm. I don't blame him for that. I would never do because that was his life. That was his mm. career. We chose to stay in the Bosnia. Sarajevo because the goal was that when he finishes his career we're gonna move we're gonna live in Sarajevo nobody even thought about the war so like my mother said listen you go and you play when you're finished you'll be back here you know where we are but of course, when you saw kids, you know, playing with your dad, I wanted to because everybody knew who my dad was. Mm. For me, it was like a big thing when he came into the summer and we had to walk down and people wanted to talk to him and ask him. And I was there like a proud little boy. Every picture I have, it was like the biggest smile on my face. You know, I was pure. I was, I was not a destroyed kid at that time. I wonder, you've just said destroyed kid at that time. I mean, we've been talking for a, for a while and I guess just a quick summary of where we are is that you were born somewhere that you grew up and you felt very happy until about eight or nine, but your dad wasn't around who was your role model from around the age of three. Mm. Then you're in an environment where you're seeing friends and family die and you're trying to protect your own life in this environment. A few years later, by the age of 11, you're now an asylum seeker. At any point, because we know how important early experiences are for children and how it shapes them, did that ever catch up with you? Because that is an extraordinary start to life. That is something, I mean, we've spoken to all manner of people on this podcast that have had very different starts to life and very different experiences. But I think this is completely unique in terms of this quite a terrifying existence that at points you must have felt you had. Even as a 10-year-old, not understanding, I guess, what the war was or why it had suddenly engulfed where you lived. It must have been really difficult at times. Yeah, it was, Sam. You know, sometimes I get off when people speak about it. Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs. It was tough in all that council estates. And I mean, why do you use that story if you don't mean it? Just be genuine. Uh, fighting for yourself, that's everything you have. Fighting for your family. So make sure you do something with your life. Uh, people grew up in council estates and suburbs. I know it's tough, especially even here in Sweden, even in England. But it was never, it's never a war in a way. You always had your school to go to with no problems. You was always in your own country. Uh, so sometimes I, I don't like these days, people use these stories. So people will clap them on their shoulder and say, listen, look at this. Look what he's done. Look what she's done. I think it's bullshit because then real proper stories about people that actually experience trauma, they come like in, in second hand because somebody else, some influence on Instagram has decided that this is the way forward. You know what I mean? To get a comment, to get a like. And there's no truth in that. It's like 70-80% truth. Mine is a 100% genuine story. I never spoke about people about this. I didn't even speak to my parents about that. Because I always let everything just eat me from the inside. And it's still eating from the inside, but I'm, I'm in a happier place. But to experience that, to see them things, you don't even see it in the movies. You know, when I speak about it, it's like I'm speaking about somebody else. I feel like I'm speaking to a totally different person. If I saw myself... 10-year-old Boyan here beside me. It's like two different people. So, Did you always want to be a professional footballer, even at that age? Yeah, I did. I did. I did. I always, when I see some clips when I was young, you know, we, my mom was in the 80s, she was recording with that big, big camera. And, mm -hmm. 
in in, in Balkan was like uh, I don't know. It was just happy every single picture we took. She like it was like a rearranged picture. Uh, you laugh. You show this. Fi- you show this thing. Uh, you do like this. It was not like <laughs> everything was just like said. It was like North Korea. But I always said like I was gonna be. I was gonna be the best footballer this country has seen. I was. I, I'm gonna play for Red Star Belgrade. I'm gonna win titles. I'm gonna be better than my father. All these things I said when I was three, four, five. I was not even in the first grade by six. <laughs> So it was my big, big dream. But the only thing that I will say about my father when he came into my life later on is he never pressured me. He never pushed me. The only thing he said to me, listen, if you want to be a ballerina, be a ballerina. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to support you. I just want to see your happy face. I want to see you enjoy it. I want to see you go to a training session and actually want to train. You're not going to do this for me. And he never pressured me like some parents pressure their kids. So he just let me grow up in my own, in my own time. And that's something that's, that is of so value because we see kids now as well, especially parents. It's got worse now. Their yeah. parents want their sons or daughters to succeed because they're going to live through them. And they put so much pressure on them, so they lose themselves. They start hating something they loved all their lives. And that's wrong. Some kids, the 10, 11, 12, they train seven, eight times a week. I didn't even train seven times a week. I was a first team player United sometimes when I trained. You know what I mean? But they train when they're 10-11. So I don't know. When did did the the time come then when you thought, I could make it as a footballer? And when did the time, was it in Sweden when you then started becoming in a team and you became a player and then you had a, a chance to come to United? How did that, the next three, four years of your life, what was that? First time I played organized football, not street football, when I came to Stockholm. Yeah. And my dad took me to a training session. But uh, to come back to that story, first time I actually went out to play football with my mates in the suburb when I grew up in Stockholm, I waited, Maisie, I waited all day for them to pick me. All day I waited. I couldn't speak that well English. I didn't speak Swedish. Yeah. I looked like a proper refugee in their eyes, even though they were foreign. So even that was tough for me to see. I saw them play and I thought, these are <laughs> yeah, That was my first thing. I said to myself in Serbian, I said, I'm not getting picked and these can even pass a ball. I waited all night for somebody to be called home. They said, no, we're playing seven against seven. There's no room for that. If you want to be in goal, I said, I'm not a goalkeeper. I'm not going to be in goal. So I had to wait till some mother would call their son to go for dinner and they could actually pick me then. And it was dark. You couldn't even see the ball. So they said to me, yeah, come, 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 come back next day. So I come home. I'm frustrated. You know, I'm angry. I said to my, what, what have we come to? This place and all that. You know, I was, I, was, I was angry. Next day I came. Somebody didn't show up. Since, since that day, first 15, 20 minutes, they were standing outside my balcony shouting, can Boyan come out and play football? <laughs> because I could play. So in my way, it was my revenge. And all through my life, it was always been revenge. And it takes so much of your energy to always get your revenge on people. And then I realized now that I was just angry deep inside. I had to be better than everybody else. I have to show them. And I never forget, you know, I can still see people even today, people that I grew up with, they were not good to me. And I would tell them, hey, what are you doing with your life now? Mm. Because I'm angry. Then I come home and I think, was that the right reaction for myself? Do you think, Bo, do, do, do you think all this, oh, I don't know. And I think it, yeah, I know the answer, I think. All this anger that you have, 
Is that obviously because of your your upbringing? It's there, Maisie. I think I think as well. When you're younger, you don't think as deep as I do now. You know, when you get older, to certain after football and all that, because it's never defined me in a way. I grew up as a person because I said to myself, I have to be strong for myself because if I continue like this, I'm not gonna be a good brother. I'm not gonna be a good son. Maybe in the future, father, uncle, everything, all of that falls because if I don't trust myself 100, percent then mm. it's gonna show. If I don't see myself in the mirror every morning, then it's a problem. If I'm angry all the time to actually show people what they've done, then it's going to be a problem. But sometimes I fall out of that circle. Like I told you, and I go yeah. to him, what have you done with your life? You work in McDonald's, but you laughed at me when I was 12. You know, they laughed where I lived because we didn't even live. It was not even one bedroom, Maisie. It was just like a studio flat with a little kitchen. Everything was in the living room a TV, a bed sofa, and we were six because my godfather escaped, refugeed, and he came into our house as well. So we were like six people, yeah, six people sleeping in a, bed, in a room mm. that's smaller than this little studio where I'm at now, sleeping on the floor. So he was snoring because he was, he was a, I was so p***ed up because he was snoring so much. But then I realized after a while, no, he, he was captured. He was sitting yeah. inside a jail. He was lucky to get alive. So everything he dreamt every night was just nightmares. But the only escape we could have, it was like, because he was snoring so much, we laugh at it now. It was like, you come to a balcony, it's like four people sitting on the balcony and complaining about him snoring, but you couldn't wake <laughs> him up because you know, like, it was just like a crazy scene from a movie. Like my mom, my dad, my auntie were just like smoky Marlboros and me and my sister like sitting on the balcony, five of us on the balcony while he's snoring inside. <laughs> So, but, and, but they were laughing, you know, look where you live, you know, I mean, you're yeah. six people, how can you live on the floor, sleep on the floor, and everything, all that was like, like everything was just building inside me, you know? Yeah. I bet they weren't yeah. laughing when you got the call for Manchester United, though. Tell us about how that eventually came about. I played for a team called the Bromma Poikana here. I mean, if you if you translate it, it's Bromma Boys. It's probably it's it's the best academy in Sweden, and it's an academy that's actually brought through their ranks most national team players the Sweden has ever oh, had. Wow. So many big players have gone through that system. Uh, Bromma Poikana are really good up till you're 16, 17, and then people leave for bigger clubs in mm -hmm. Stockholm or in Sweden. So they're really good with the talented kids. But of course, when you come, uh, when I came through the ranks, I was one of the few foreigners in a way. You know, I was never accepted, even if I got my passport and all that. <laughs> I was still a foreigner in a way. My Swedish wasn't the best. Uh, you can actually see even uh, have memories that even parents from opposing teams were saying things about me that were not right you know it, it was racism even if i was white but it was that other white privilege that gave them they gave them power to see me as somebody that shouldn't be there if i wasn't good at football you know mm. because they were daddy's sons they were paying for sponsorships they were paying for them to play i just played i didn't even have normal shoes i didn't even have normal shoes my, my parents did everything sorry to go back to you. my mom worked day and night day and night to bring food onto our table and seeing her work and never complain and coming from a, such a nice family as she did, but she didn't have nothing against working for me and my sister and for the family to stand on their feet, I said to myself then, I don't get an F, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it, doesn't matter what it costs, I'm going to make it and make sure that she can actually never clean another room in her life. So that was, my, that was my fuel. I never had like proper friends. I had proper friends, childhood friends, but I was always on my own. I was making plans. When people are going out drinking, smoking, no, I was home. I was mm. home. 
If I didn't fight, I was home. I had problems even then. I, li- I like to have a fight because people always, they always try to, they were always rude. You know, they were arrogant. But I was not one of them that always let the bullies actually tell me who I was. Many people are afraid. Many people go home. They don't want to go to school next day. I went to school and I said, who's the biggest bully? I go and punch him and see what happens. That was, that was my way in. That's how I thought. You know what I mean? Well, who's the strongest? Who's the biggest? I go and punch him. And then we'll see what happens. I'm so glad we didn't go to school together. I'm really <laughs> tall. And I've always been bigger than everybody, but absolutely useless at fighting. I did that, Sam. Sam, trust me, I took that with me when I went to Ashton and Mersey School in Sale as well. That's what I did on my first break. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I beat a guy up. I had to go to Mr. Kapoor's office. He was called Mr. Kapoor. I was afraid of him. And he said, what did you do? I said, no, I was making fun of my hair that I tied jeans and all that, you know, into school. So I just went and I didn't break his jaw, but I, no, I made sure that he knew that it doesn't matter if my hair, man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a survivor. To be fair, Bob, some of the gear you did wear was f***ing it. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Remember my gear. Hey, Maisie, you can't forget my gear. Remember Martin Dalin? Remember Martin Dalin? Remember yeah, him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He had the like shirts out because he was he he had finished his career and he brought a, like a shirt collection and he was like shiny blue shirts and I put that I love that blue shiny shirt and I tied jeans and I was gonna go out with Chasey and them I think listen that was the worst thing that ever happened to them when they saw me dressed with my <laughs> greasy hair tight jeans and they were gonna take me out in Manchester to Piccadilly Twenty Ones. But us. So how, how did how did you move to Old Trafford come about then? Uh, I was 16 years old. Uh, I was picked for the Swedish under-16s, and we first time ever in Swedish history made the Euros. And uh, sometimes, you know, um, you get lucky that you perform in games where scouts, when people are watching, because it was much harder than leave your country to become a professional abroad. Because now you have social networks, you have YouTube, you have agents. At that time, the scout really needed to mm. see you. Yeah. for you to get a chance to come on trial. Just to come on trial to England or any other country, it was like you made it. But we played against England, uh, born in 82. It was Jermaine Defoe. He was unbelievable even then. I remember we lost the game, but it was probably one of my best games during that time. Everything that I wanted to do, it just happened. The first touch, nutmegs, passing. No, it was just like my game. So after that, United contacted my team in Sweden because I was only 15 when I made my first team debut, which is, and it was in second tier. It's like in the champion, Swedish championship. Being 15, you're still young. Would, sorry to interrupt there, would United have seen that maybe on TV, that game, or did word just no, filter through? They were there. So there was actually uh, was, there. I think it was, uh, well, who's, what's yeah, yeah, Les Kershaw. I Les think Kershaw. it was Les Kershaw. Yeah, I think it was Les Kershaw as well. It was Les Kershaw was there always because, of course, when the Euros went under 16s, a lot of interesting players come. Uh, you always have to follow them. So scouts were there. But I, I remember even Steve Highway from Liverpool was there. Uh, Tottenham, it was Moncur, John Moncur as well. Not the player, but his father was the head of the yeah. youth system at Tottenham at the time. So there was them three clubs together with Bayern Munich that actually spoke to me straight, uh, straight afterwards because I had one of my better games during them three games as well. So it was not just England. I was, I was good through all the tournament, even when we got knocked out. And then they contacted my club and then had the choice. Uh, but the funny, the funny part about all that was when I decided, because my dad and my mom said, now listen, you cannot just go on trial through Europe. You have to pick when you're free from school. And it was like December month because it was the holidays. But I started, I started in the wrong end. So <laughs> in a way, United was my last destination. So when I came to Manchester, 
and when they came to pick me up, I was the angry kid again. I was so tired of traveling. I was so tired of listening to people what was good for me. I couldn't stay in any hotels anymore. I couldn't put another kid on. I couldn't have a shower. I couldn't train twice a day. So when I came to United, it was not that thing that I had feeling. I was like, hey man, just United contacted me. It was like, I cannot be bothered. I said, I'm going to be so then I have to call me back again. Whoa. And I, I was so bad during that training, during training sessions from Monday to Friday that I think people saw that they, they actually picked my bad twin to come <laughs> during that week. <laughs> you can ask Webbs. You can ask Webbs. He was there. I, I didn't want I was, I, I was kicking balls away. Think about it. A kid coming on trial from Sweden, kicking balls away, shouting, complaining, going into the dressing room from Monday to Friday. Bozo, that, that was every day for you. That was <laughs> yeah, like a normal day for you training. Spit the dummy out. Yeah, I know. I know, but you, 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 listen, Maisie, to be honest, listen, I'm jumping stories as well, but in the beginning, I was thinking that Maisie hates me, man. I think I need to have a fight with Maisie so you can actually get some respect for me. Absolutely. No, he was. Honestly, he was, because after Doncaster, we were going to open a game, Doncaster Rovers new ground, and Maisie was on my case all the time. You know, like, I was thinking, what? the F is wrong with his center back behind me. <laughs> Just give me the ball and shut up. And I was thinking Maisie was, you know, he was big. He didn't want to fight Maisie because he could fight, you know, because he was strong. I was thinking, listen, if I'm going to get my respect, I have to do something. I remember Maisie, I don't know if he threw a boot at me in the dressing room or whatever. <laughs> and we went in half time. And I was thinking, now nah, listen, when I come back on Monday, I have to have a fight with Maisie. But then I learned that if Maisie complains, if he's on your case, that there is a potential chance that he likes you. <laughs> so I left it. It was a wise choice. <laughs> he actually liked me. You know what I mean? He actually liked me. So there's a chance he liked me. So it was Maisie was my big thing. I was like, listen, I have to have a fight with Maisie, but how can I, how can I, he's bigger. You know, if he, if he gets close to me, I'm dead. <laughs> Bojan, the only reason why I would do that, the only reason I, I would have seen the talent in you and to try and get it out of you, to try and get a reaction out of you. That's why I would have a go at you. And I did have a go at you. I, I, I realised they're too late, Macy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I did. I did. Do you remember um, who was on that trial with you? You mentioned Danny Weber there. Do you remember who was on that trial week with you? Uh, you mean you mean as, as, a, as a trialist or you mean in my team at the time? No, as a trialist at United the week that you said you were bad? You know, it was. Kennedy was called. He was called Kennedy Bakarciuglo. And he came on trial with me. He was a little bit older. And Kennedy became a, a... I mean, he was a full national team player for Sweden. He went on to play for Ajax. He scored goals in La Liga, Barca and Real Madrid. But I was always above. And sometimes people think that I regret my choices, regret the life I lived because people that were actually had less talent did things that I dreamt of. But he was on that trial. But from Monday to Friday, he was unbelievable in training. And I was just moaning, complaining, had fights with people in my team. But two people, I thought, listen, these two are good. He was Danny Weber and, and Jimmy Davis. Because when you put it on the under-17 or under-19 level, to have pace, skill, finishing, they were head and shoulders above everybody else. So for me, it was like maybe on Saturday it was a trial game because under-19s was going to play and I was going to play in that team. I was like, maybe I should just have fun because I played in the central midfield on the left and they played up front. Maybe I would just show them too that I'm better than them. That was my, that was my, that's how I fired myself up. I said, they think they were so slick because him and Jimmy, they always had their little pack together. And he can tell you this. If, if uh, we had Dave, uh, Dave Williams and Neil Bailey was the coaches. 
So when Neil Bailey used to say threes, everybody was in a three except them two because there was always two of them because they were better than everybody else. <laughs> you know, like they wanted to show they had their touches and all that. So even if I was the spare one, I had to go and make a four because I was not on their level. That's how everything started. So on Saturday, I said to myself, listen, <laughs> listen, they think they're so good, man, I'm better than this. So on Saturday, I woke up. I remember when I was driving up to training session with the agent that actually brought me there and together with Les Kershaw and everybody else, nobody spoke to me because they were so disappointed that I was so shit during that week. They didn't, they didn't even have <laughs> hopes of me performing. And I was the best player on that pitch. And we played that uh, Littleton Road at the training ground. I just did whatever, whatever I wanted. And... Uh, Straight after, they came to me, listen, we want to offer you a contract. And my first, first answer was, I said, listen, I, got, I get these what I want. I said, listen, I have to go home and think about it. <laughs> that was my first thing. I'm going to go home and think about it. I was thinking to myself, you little refugee, you're 17 years old, Manchester United offering you this contract, and you're sitting there and telling them, I have to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was so tired. I just want to go to back to my mother. I just want to play some games on my Nintendo. You know what I mean? I want to see some girls, whatever. How long, uh, how long did you think about it? I thought about it for a while. I thought about it for a while because uh, I said to myself, uh, when I made the decisions, oh, my family was good with that. My dad said, all these clubs that offered you a contract now, we have to go and visit them to see how they will take care of you outside training ground. You know, mm. where would you live? What school would you attend? What would your life look like outside the training pitch? Because it's only two hours in the morning or the afternoon. And then it's a lot of spare time. So all of these clubs I visited, Manchester United made the biggest impression on me. We, had to, we met Gaffer. You know, Sir Alex, he came to Stockholm to visit my boyhood team and speak to the coaches there. Can you believe that? Wow. Sir Alex, after the treble winning season, sits on a plane for a 16, 17-year-old kid and comes to his little club outskirts of Stockholm and has a chat for over an hour with the other coaches there. And how can I not sign for United then? Everybody else was sending everybody else, you know, like some, somebody that was like yeah. a boss of the academy, some coach here and there. Sir Alex came to Stockholm. I said, where's the pen? I'll write this contract now. It's incredible. But, but you, you couldn't barge with him when, when it comes to the contract. I was like thinking, I said, what is this? One, from year one to year two, it's like, like a 50 quid raise. It's like 50 pound raise. <laughs> <laughs> and he thought it was like a biggest deal ever. Like 50 pounds is good. I said 50 pounds. Do you remember how much your first contract was? Yeah, I, I, listen, if, if, if I tell you now, then you understand why everybody else in that team wanted to break my legs when I was on under 19s because I was everybody was on YT contracts like 90 pounds a week and all that and I had a professional contract I, I, I had for being a United player being under Sir Alex and everybody knows being an academy player under Sir Alex you don't earn that much I actually got a great signing on he listened to me he made sure that I could buy my first flat in a way and also had money on the side. But it was tough as well speaking about it because United played one million pounds for me. One million pounds, and it was in all English papers. And coming to that dressing room, one million pound kid as a teenager, mm. sitting with other people that were 90 pounds a week, it was survival in the beginning. I had to be better than them to get accepted. 
It was not that easy. And everybody was not like opening their arms. Oh, here, here comes the savior comes. Nobody spoke to me in the beginning. Did you speak English then? Yeah, I spoke English. I learned English. Uh, but also, listen, there's a difference in school English and then coming to Manchester yeah. and then listen to people that are from Scotland, Northern Ireland, Ireland. You know, for me, it was easier like listen to Manc English. I was like, Oof, this is good. But then the Scottish, <laughs> Scottish players were like, I was like, what is this for? Is this some other language? <laughs> <laughs> it was never easy for you, was it? I was it? just waiting. I was just waiting for Mel Gibson to come into the training ground as well. You know what I mean? Freedom! <laughs> so when you first, you signed your contract, your very good contract? It was. Did you go into digs straight away? Yeah, I went to the digs and my first digs was in Salford because the first six months we were still at the cliff training ground waiting to get moved yeah. to Carrington in the beginning of 2000. So six months and my first digs, that was the digs that didn't show me in the beginning. <laughs> the first they showed me the digs in sale. I was like, yeah, I can do with sale. It was nice. <laughs> they put me in Salford close to the Littleton Road. I was together with Luke Chadwick with Phil Bardsley's granddad. <laughs> <laughs> Bardo's granddad, me and Chaddy. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> but the funny story, I think I think he's passed away now, his granddad Phil's. He was the nicest man and he was so proud of Phil. His pictures everywhere. And always he used to take me on Sundays to a pub. But the thing is as well, growing up in Salford, you know, like I told you, listen, having tight jeans and all that tight t-shirt, I was not that popular when I was having walks because I just looked different than everybody else. Uh, they saw me as an easy target, but I wasn't. So one time uh, I went, he said to me, listen, meet me, at the, meet me at the pub for Sunday lunch. Like we always said, watch some football. It was only me, Chaddy. I think Chaddy was down in Cambridge. I think he's from yeah. Cambridge. So he went down to visit his family. So I went early. But I was fully dressed, you know, I think I had some, oh, it was crazy. I think dodgy gear. I, I had white pants, man, crazy. I had white pants. <laughs> who, who have, I look like Miami Vice. I look like Don Johnson. In Salford. <laughs> but I wanted to go into that pub. This was the pub, you know, I'm waiting there. When I came into the pub. Can you remember the pub's name? No. I cannot remember the pub's name, Maisie, but it was close to Lytton Road. It was the only one. We, all, we took a walk because he, he lived on the way to Lytton Road. So he was the only, it was quite a big pub, you know, it was like a parking lot yeah. in there. It was like full of people on Sundays, but I walk in there and I was like, it was just, it just went dead quiet. You know what I mean? It's like a Western movie. <laughs> and I was looking around, you know, they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, what? The, you know what I mean? People are like going rock pots. You know what I mean? Rock pots. It was proper scullies. I was like, hey, you know, like they had their little haircut as well with brill cream and all that. Everybody just looked the same. <laughs> So I was like, okay, okay. And then it came to me and a fight came, you know what I mean? He came to me outside, whatever. And I mean, I don't know what they said. I remember just, listen, I said, I have to go first. So I go and just gives, give this guy a right. But then I got a little beat up a little bit, you know what I mean? Because there were three, four of them. I ran. But on the way, I meet Phil Bosley's granddad. <laughs> he was a big man. Listen, people are scared of him. He was a fighter, I think, as well. <laughs> so he looked at me. I had a little bit of a, bru I had a little bit of bruising. Yeah, when I came with him, I'm not gonna go into this full story. But when I came back with him, nobody touched me there. They paid my drinks every <laughs> Sunday. I came. Everything was paid for for me after that day. Wow. <laughs> Brilliant. There was the first time, Helen. I felt that punch. You know, like when a punch numbs your face. It was the first time I felt a punch that numbed my face. Mm. 
So that's brilliant. Sometimes you get beat up. You can never. People always say like, oh, "No, I've never been." Yeah, yeah, I've been in fights, but there there was a time that a, that punch hurt. I had to run. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, change of subject slightly. Do you remember yeah. somewhere around this point becoming a wonder kid on Football Manager? I, I did because I used to play it. I never used to sleep, <laughs> so I used to play it myself. Because I guess that added its own weird level of pressure. No, well, I was just fun win- winning leagues with myself on Championship oh, Manager. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Putting the arrow just one direction. I never worked back. I just put the arrow <laughs> forward. Yeah. Maisie would know that. <laughs> Bo, come back. Bo, <laughs> left. Bo, right. No, I didn't give my F. I just wanted to play forward. Yeah, we know. But, but the, your involvement in that game has sort of become legend in itself. Yeah, it did. It was just, you know, like the thing is, sometimes it still bugs me mm-hmm. because people think that the game exaggerated stuff that I was not that good at that time. But uh, honestly, I will tell you, for my academy level, I was head and shoulders above everybody else. Even when we played people like West Ham with all the Carricks, Defoe's, Leon Knights, because they had a really good academy system. Everton, Liverpool's, Melwood and all that. C- cities, they were not even good at that time. We used to beat them 5-6-0 six, six easy. It was not even a game. But at the time, I was head and shoulders above them. I mean, people say you shouldn't speak about yourself, but it was not exaggerated at that time. Because I had the talent and I, I was aware of that. But I was still that trouble kid. Yeah. You know, uh, I told Matt when we spoke the other day, I said, people don't understand that for me coming to a training ground, going onto the pitch, there was 19 minutes of my life that just stood still and I had to be that kid as I was when I was 10. As soon as the training finished, all the troubles, all my life, all the traumas, they just came back to me to bug me. And first time, I cursed that drink even today, Piccadilly 21s, People in Manchester, they're a bit older. They know what kind of place that was. I mean, you go there, you know you're going to be six, in six fights in one night, especially on student nights on a Thursday. That student night on a Thursday is like drinks, quid for drink or two quid a drink, but it doesn't matter. But first time I tasted alcohol, I came to England. I came to Manchester. And I remember, it was clearly, I walk into the bar and somebody told me, do you want to have a drink? Because I didn't even just go out with the, with my teammates. I went out with people that they were from Manchester. You know, people that I met in Salford, people that I went in sale later on or in town. I like to be around normal people, not just my teammates. But of course, they had a different life. You know, like student nights, they had school. At the uni, I was going to go and train football. I was going to say, why were you on a student night on a Thursday night? Yeah. Surely cheap that drinks. Cheap, cheap, yeah, pound drinks. 24 hours. Cheap drinks, cheap drinks, and I was just be, I was getting paid every week as well. So with my wages, I was the king. <laughs> yeah, but what I mean is because it was a Thursday. Yeah, because I needed one day. So close to the weekend. Uh, in in the beginning, I didn't think about it, but when I start drinking later on, I needed one day to recover so I could play on a, a Saturday morning at eleven. Eleven was always a kickoff. Yeah. So I needed that day and then I, had to, I could play. So what people didn't even know that most of these games, academy level or reserve level, sometimes, uh, I, if we'll take blood out of my wings, you could see that I had alcohol in them. So we spoke to Danny Weber the other day and I think what he said was that even though his teammates might not know and his uh, coaches might not know, but that his conscience always knew when he took that extra drink or he had the extra night out and it was always taking that little percentage off. Is that how you felt when you were out on student nights? Sam, every decision I made was my decision. I don't regret it. Mm-hmm. It put me to dark places, but I learned from them. 
I would never go back and say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. If I haven't done that, maybe at least I would have still played football. I would have played on a better level than I was when I finished. You know, I could have been, if I didn't become a Premier League player, I could have been a championship player with all the talent. No, it was my decisions. I put myself into this shit and it was up to me to take myself out of this shit. You know what I mean? People are, it's, it's much easier, even if they say they knew, the conscience knew. But even if you're 17, 18, 19, 20, you're still aware of the decisions you make or how the decisions will punish you later on. People, especially footballers, they, will, they regret. They always regret things. But listen, if you regret, you will never become that person that you want to be even now because you always think about it during them years that you should have made it. You know what I mean? I kicked the ball for a living. I got paid to play something I love most in my life. So even if I played in Sweden, people are hard. Oh, people, people don't even play for the, for the building, I always say. They, can, they don't even make the Sunday mm. league team. You know what I mean? So there is different versions, different stories about that. But at the same time, when I came back to that, thir- when that Thursday, my first drink I ever drank, it's the embarrassing thing. I said to myself, people think I must have been whiskey because I love whiskey. It was Malibu and Coke. Malibu and Coke. Who drinks Malibu and Coke? Tell me. <laughs> Gary Pallister. Who drinks that drink? Malibu and Coke. That was Pally's drink. But Helen, I walk in. Helen, Helen, I walk into the toilet. I remember I had that drink and a few minutes later, I walk into the toilet. I look at myself in the mirror. I was like, I'm Superman. <laughs> Honestly, I thought I had a big S on my chest. I was like, what is this? Hey, confidence was even higher. I was like, hey, I played five, 500 games for United. That was the confidence that Drake gave me. You know what I mean? But of course, it was just only in the beginning. But then it just became a, on a regular basis because I was actually controlled up till came to 17. 18, uh, I got that Jimmy, Jimmy Murphy Young Player of the Year yeah. award. And everything was going smoothly. Everything was going in the way I wanted to do. But as older I got, more traumatized I got of the things that happened before. Yeah. And I never trained properly. I mean, even my teammates can, can tell you that. You know, I always had a decision. I always had fights with Mike Clegg in the gym because I never do the boxing. And one time he said to me, put your gloves on, we're going into the ring. That's how annoying I was. You know, he wanted to fight me, Mike Clegg. So <laughs> not, not Mike Clegg, the player, but his father. His dad, yeah. You don't want to fight with his father. Yeah, his dad as well. So the thing is, I never did, did gym. I never did the running. I used to come behind the goalkeepers and all that. So all those things affected my body. And when you grow older, your muscles, they're not the same anymore. One injury, one minor injury, one more, third, fourth, and then comes major injuries. And when you're on that level, when you get injured so often, you lose that half of yard. And when you lose that half a yard, in your mind, you're still the player you were before the injuries, but you're not. And you get annoyed, you get frustrated because you see things, but your body is not reacting the way you want it to do. Everything is late because we're talking about Manchester United. We're talking about world-class players at the time. I don't think there's ever been a squad as good at, at that one. You know, sometimes I sat at Old Trafford, I was like, Seba Veron is on the bench. You know what I mean? And what can I say then? What can we academy players say at that time? Maisie knows himself. Maisie mm. was a professional. I remember when Maisie, everything he played, experienced. We played many games together at the end of Maisie's United career because he played a few games in the resis then. But he did, he did things properly. I didn't even look at Maisie and say, listen, look at this guy. He goes out and plays 90 minutes. He slaughters center halves. He complains. He shouts at me. And I'm still pissed off because I'm in the reserves. Why didn't he pick me for the squad? How can he pick him but not me? 
You know what I mean? On a gig mm. lane Thursday night, I didn't want to run because I was pissed off because I was not in the squad for Saturday. And there is Dwight York playing up front, Amazie at the back. Okay, Yorkie, Yorkie, but Maze just did things properly. He could have said, F this, I'm injured. I'm going to go to the, to the physio and just lie. Why should I play Thursday night with ease? You know what I mean? So then things maybe I should have taken in. Maybe I should have looked at the professionals right there and then instead of being in my bubble, which I see now that that bubble was totally wrong. My attitude was wrong. Maybe you've been harsh on yourself because I happen to know that you did do some things you were told. Uh, before a trip to America, you turned up with long <laughs> yeah. hair, right? Gaffan, <laughs> oh, he killed me. Oh, my God. That was, that was the thing. <laughs> I came back. I was on loan to Red Star Belgrade. And that season is one of the best seasons I've ever had in my life. That season alone, with the, with the award I got that with Jimmy Murphy, I could live on them two things. <laughs> and not do anything anymore in my career. <laughs> because I had Vidic as the captain during that year in Red Star. We won the league. We won the cup. We won the double. And I came back from a loan spell. And that preseason, I started training with the first team properly. I mean, it was every day. And things were really going smooth. Because I said to my, now you are turning 22. There's no more room for you just being an idiot as you have been. You cannot just live on your talent all the time. The only thing I wanted to do, put a nutmeg, uh, hit a cross, hit a pass. I could live on one moment. Honestly, I could be shit sometimes in 85 minutes, but I could hit a cross and we could win a game and people forget that I was shit in 85 minutes. I had that. And at the, the same time, we come back pre-season. We're going to travel to America. Last training session before, Gaffa walks past me and he goes, listen, if you're going to come, tomorrow to the airport if you're gonna travel with us you have to shave your hair and he just walked but it was not like a eye contact he just said it like when he just passed by me <laughs> and then i was thinking you know shazy was there he was laughing and i think quinny and all them everybody everybody was laughing in a bit because now it was a dilemma have i grown up does he mean this Knowing myself, I was like, everybody's known this guy. He's never gonna, he's never gonna cut his hair. But it was really long. I mean, he was even greasier than he was when I was 17. So, but I was a first team player. I came back. I won the double. I've done something now. I said no chance. At that time, I stayed at John, uh, John O'Shea's um, with his wife now, Yvonne. So, I was gonna sleep over there because we we're gonna travel together. He goes to me. I said, listen, no chance. I'm gonna cut my hair. Of course, he's gonna take him with me. I'm not gonna give way. So I go to bed and I'm thinking, I'm happy with my decision. Half an hour later, I'm knocking on their, I'm, I'm knocking on their door. I say, Shazy, Yvonne, get up. Let's go down to the kitchen. Down in the kitchen, I'm sitting on the, on the chair and they are shaving my hair off. Every part of my hair that fell down to the floor. Ask Yvonne or Shazy, my tears, I cried. It was tears <laughs> down my cheeks. So we go to the airport. We are going to that lounge. First step I took into the lounge where we're going to have a meal. Gaffer turns to Albert and said, you owe me. You owe me? I heard that. So they had a bet. The Albert said, no way you're going to get him to do. He's never listened to anybody. He's not going to listen to this now. <laughs> and Gaffer, Gaffer said to him, I bet you he's going to cut his hair. So he owes me. So he had a bet with Albert that I was going to shave my hair off. So I shaved my hair off and I didn't speak to anybody for three days. <laughs> <laughs> was it like properly a zero all over? G.I. Joe. 
No, listen, there is a picture I have to send you. If you, if you, if you look at 2004, now honestly, I, I look like a used tennis ball, you know, like when you play tennis and the ball is just old. <laughs> number that one, was how number I looked two. Like. Honestly, I, I, was ashamed, I, was, I was ashamed of myself. I couldn't go. Have you ever brought it up to Albert or Sir Alex since that day? Uh, no, because I left in January 2005, but they, they, they were laughing and all about it. Listen, first three days, I didn't speak to anybody. I was so pissed off at the world and everything. It was just like I woke up. I could sleep longer because I didn't have like, I had to put wax in and all that. But it was just like, it was just horrible. I was thinking I was, I was the ugliest Serb in the world. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't want my mother to see this. It looks like I've been in jail and come back after 15 years. At least it showed that you had respect and a little bit of fear of Sir Alex. I did. Because I saw him as my granddad, you know, I, I think he was so strict, but he was fair. And I think he, he liked me because I was always honest. And I could say things that everybody else was afraid of saying, especially as academy players. We're not talking about first team players. We're talking about young players that actually go head to head and have an argument about something that I thought was wrong. Because I always said to myself, doesn't matter if somebody's played 500 games, does he have to then have the privilege of speaking to me like I'm just because I haven't played? For me, it was, it was always like human beings. If you treat me good, I'll treat you good. But just be fair. You know what I mean? But usually if footballers or that type of things is like, if I played more, I have more power. I can speak to you the way I want because I'm more important. And I never see football as that way because if you're going to win things, if you're going to have a squad, then even the player number 22 has to be part of that. You know what I mean? And United always had that during that years because... Maisie will tell you as well, Carrington, everybody sat together at the tables, you know, everybody spoke. It was not yeah. like if you go past any first team players that you didn't speak to them and nobody said good morning. You had relations with people. Everybody felt welcome. Even people that was on the bench in the under 19s, they loved coming to Carrington to see the first team players, to see Scolzi ping the balls or, you know, hitting people in the heads and whatever. See Bex practicing his free kicks. I mean, I experienced that. To see that live, or Seba Veron when he came, listen, when he came and he had that little thing around his knee, like a white tape, yeah. every academy player used to go with that. They didn't even have no problems with their <laughs> yeah. knees, but they had that. <laughs> I wanted to have ASIC shoes as well, because his touch was unbelievable. People maybe didn't even seen that, but Maisie, like everybody that actually was with Seba, training session all that, boxes, it was unbelievable. Yeah. It was like magic, yeah. you know? He just moved like he was above the grass. So at this time, you were in the reserves. Yeah. And usually people think, okay, reserves, next step is first team. But as the people that you've pointed out there, it wasn't such an easy road to make it into the first team squad at that time, I suppose. No, 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 it wasn't. And the, th the thing is as well that uh, I knew my time was up when Chalky gave me the armband in the reserves. You know, when you get the armband in the reserves, you know you're going to stay there till you're 33 at Gig Lane. You know what I mean? And that was not my plan. <laughs> I bought you the captain today. I was like, effing hell, captain. <laughs> no, but the thing is as well that that was the, that was the time because 22, I actually had a really good preseason. I remember I had one of my better games with Bayern Munich in uh, Chicago. And I played with Keeney, and me and Roy playing in the centre midfield because I never wanted to be put as a left winger because Maisie will tell you I never had the pace. I had the skill, but I had to beat a player two, three times to actually put that cross in. And that was the problem for me because I was thinking if I'm going to 
make it or even play a few minutes for this team. I cannot play on the left. Look at Giggsy's speed. Even Quinny was faster than me. Everybody was faster than me. You know what I mean? They didn't have to beat the player the same time as I did. I wanted to play central. I wanted to see things. So he put me on the central midfield, but that's where I played in Red Star. So I was more mature. Uh, I was uh, actually passing the ball better. I was not dribbling as much. I was not frustrating people as much. So when I played with him, we played against Balak, he just came to Bayern Munich, and I had one of the better games. But it was so hot, it was so humid, that I felt something in my calf end of the game. I was subbed, but I was afraid of telling them because I really wanted to play against AC Milan a few days after. Because not many people came to America because it was the Euros in 2004, some, some people were coming to the last game, so I knew that I was going to play first two games. But I was afraid of telling the physio, I was struggling and we had training sessions in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the afternoon we had some running session and my calf just went. So I missed all the preseason and I was injured. Coming back, frustration, pissed off with myself. Then I really started to visit the casinos. I was out all the time. I mean, you know, when you come into the Ritz on a Wednesday and everybody that works there knows your name, every single guard or bouncer in town knows who you are. They maybe didn't know that I played, they knew I played, but even those that didn't know I played, they knew me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when Brutus Gold on a Wednesday night gets your thumbs up that you dare again, then you know you're in trouble. Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, playing cards. I used to play at them tables. Everything I earned. I went into casinos. I was drinking. I didn't do anything, anything properly. So that month, 2004, from July to December, I was not ready for nothing. I was, I was gone. So December comes, and uh, Gaffer, Gaffer pulls me in, and uh, we, had a, we had a proper open conversation. I mean, he, 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 he was pissed he was off. It was red when he gets red. Did he, everybody knows about his spies. So did he know that that's what you'd been doing with your spare time? I know he, he knew, he knew everything. I think even coaches knew. They, yeah. they tried to get me on the right thing. I mean, I will never forget. I think, I, I don't know if Shazy was with me at that time, that I don't know if he was, he was off. I was not off. I had the game or whatever, but I think I was passing. I was in Royals. I mean, it was called Infinity later on. Uh, so I went out from that club and I was passing the Midland, the Midland Hotel. But they always had dues, admit coaches and all the staff had dues at the Midlands Hotel. You know what I mean? So they saw me passing night before the game, Midland, and I seen them. I, I met eye to eye and I st- just started running. And now I was gone. I was drunk. I was steaming. You know what I mean? I was. <laughs> they knew, but they, they couldn't control me. It's really hard for somebody to actually put handcuffs on you and control you 24 hours of a day. Because even if I have one hour, I will do whatever I wanted to do during that hour. And nothing was proper. Nothing was anything positive. Everything was just damaging me. Everything was just hurting me. I would have been more hurt during that time then if I didn't have Danny Weber and his family because he's from Manchester or if I didn't live with John O'Shea during them days in my digs because him and his family and they were proper friends they're still my best friends outside football they tried to help they were there they tried to put me back in line but if you if you're not willing to take the last yard over the line if you're not willing to cross the line that doesn't matter because the last yard in a sprint that's mine and I choose to go the other direction, always. 
So it's tough, you know, speaking about it now. You know, it's I don't know. It just it just brings it brings brings memories that I will never forget, but in both both positive and negative way as well. Because I destroyed myself, and the younger generations now, when they see I only played two games for United, who are you to speak about the club and all that? They never played with me, and they never saw what I actually had, like Maisie said before, and it was heartwarming that actually people saw that, what I had. It was just like he was okay, I could pass a ball. I was better than the most of the kids that I played with mm -hmm. at that time, and I was one of them ones that people actually thought maybe together with Shazy and Fletch, they would take that step into the first team and play more than two games in six years. Yeah, I was there for six years, and my contract was two more years of that. Think how much he believed in me, that he was giving me contract after contract after contract, and I was just sitting there, doing nothing. This might be, I might be barking up the wrong tree, but it's just something I'm wondering, and I have been wondering since we've been talking. We've spoken so much about your upbringing and how that would have shaped you as a person. Mm -hmm. And you spoke about how much you loved football and you loved basketball and how for you those 90 minutes took you away from everything else that happened in your life and what was happening in your world. And I wonder if, and as I said, this might be absolute rubbish. I wonder if when you were first playing football, when you were... Um, back in Yugoslavia and then eventually in Sweden mm. that was you said about how much you know you wanted to enact revenge on people and so I suppose it was something that for you you had complete control on and not only you had control but you were successful at, and you could punish people with a football and you could be victorious with a football and you could be in charge with a football and maybe in your young life I guess maybe that was one of the only places that power existed for you and I suppose as you enter professional football that power doesn't belong to you, it belongs to the coaches. And so you get told you have to play in the reserves and you don't want to play in the reserves. And, I, and did that affect your relationship with football? Because I, I don't know, I'm only guessing, I mean, our experiences are so different. So I don't want to pretend I understand what happened in your life. I'm just wondering if, if maybe that, your relationship with the game and how you were told to play it and what you got from it would have been different through, through your life as you reached a point where actually your role in football became everybody else's decision and not so much your own. It was, but the thing is as well that uh, at United, all the coaches actually wanted to get the best out of me. Mm -hmm. Because as I said to you, I was a roller coaster, even in my performances when I was actually behaving. You know, one day I could be a well beater, next day I couldn't be the worst player on the pitch, you know. Uh, so th that is something that I thought that will come with age, of course, experience when you're young, you know, so much pressure and all that. But I never felt pressure, you know. Uh, pressure for me wasn't go out on a football pitch. For me, it was just like, a, this is where I can express myself. This is 90 minutes of my life to show people around that I'm better than them. That's all, you know. And I hated when the, the ref blew the final whistle. I knew I had to go back to me to my thoughts, to my little room in sale at Cecil Avenue and think. And thinking was always negative. Everything was just negative, you know? And I was happy for all the all that money I spent on during my life that I actually decided because I was, I knew what I was doing, that actually every monthly wage I got, I put a sum that actually went into my savings so I could actually have something or take care of my family, take care of my relatives. That's what I still do today. I've done it since I was 17. That I've 22 years now, I send money to everybody that I knew were there for me and they wanted the best for me. They were there when I was in the shit. They were there when I was on the top. So I'm happy because of that. I'm not going to blame myself, but maybe 
if I could speak this freely now, and look how long time it's taking me to speak, maybe I could deal with them stuff and not be that angry all the time mm. at myself and the environment around, if you know what I mean. Because I was pissed off, like people speaking to them about their problems sometimes. Oh, I'm not playing, I'm on the bench and all that. I was thinking, listen, just shut up, man. Is this a life problem? You know, in a way. So all these little stuff could affect me, could make me even more angry when I was outside the training ground. Coaches, they were always speaking. I had McPhee and the Rezies, I had Chucky, uh, Neil Bailey, Dave Williams, everybody. Steve McLaren was the assistant at the time and then Carlos came and all that. Everybody saw something, you know? Everybody spoke to me. And when people speak to you and you're nobody, then you know they see something or at least they know that even if you don't make the grade, you will still be a professional footballer on a good level. Not back in Sweden, but in England. But I didn't get an F about that, you know what I mean? I told Gaffa even once, I said, you're not my dad. Only my dad can speak to me like that. Th that was the stuff I used to say, you know what I mean? And I think he respects that now when I think about it. Otherwise, I would never be invited to visit MUTV or play a Legends game. You know, like I always laugh when they invite me to these Legends games because Legends and me. I said, hey, everybody's won trebles and Champions League, Premier Leagues, and there comes me. They're like, this is a mascot or something. But I think it's what people still see, saw something genuine in me that I, even though I only play two games, that I'm still able to mix with that type of people, which I grew up with when I was a young kid in Manchester. So You did only play two games, but what were those two games like that you did play? It was unbelievable. I remember my, my debut because a week before my debut, I played in a testimonial up at Celtic Park and I scored an unbelievable goal. Uh, I chipped a keeper. We won 2-0. Uh, I remember that I was on the bench. I was pissed off. I was on the bench. I was like, well, well, give me a chance. At me. It's a testimonial. Just give me a chance. From so Gaffer told me I go warm up and I'm off now i mean it's like a half an hour to go and all that i was like half an hour 25 minutes so 25 minutes he brings me and i remember i think it was Giggsy leaving the pitch but i'm standing i said okay this is this is my time now so i i, I don't think i passed the ball to anybody but i chipped the keeper i remember Mikel came nicky butt bex Teddy and everybody was hugging me. It was like time stood still. It was like, now I'm going to wake up and go to school. You know, sometimes you have these mm -hmm. dreams, scoring these goals and all that. And you're like, oh, it was just a dream. And then you have to go to school. But this actually happened. 2001, week after last, last game of the season, we won the league. We were going to play Tottenham away. And I came in instead of Dennis Irvin. To enter that pitch at White Hart Lane and you look at the squad inside, it was the proudest moment somebody can have, you know? And people sometimes, the, the, the crazy part that you have to defend two games in the biggest club in the world for something negative. And like I told you, people don't have any two minutes when they play for their own street. That's how bad some people are to criticize people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's always been tough. But it's been tough because during that era, it was no YouTube. It was no social networks. People can only remember me through stories. Like Maisie, like Webbs, like John, like Fletch. People can tell you about it but they cannot see anything that i was at that time so sometimes of course it gets frustrated because you're like you've been treated like a failure yeah, but Bojan, if you th if you failure for playing for manchester united no because if you think about the amount of people that'll be listening to this podcast around the world and it's like yeah, there'll be 99.99999 percent who listen to this podcast would love 
to have that one day playing for Manchester United. Yeah. And you've done that. Yeah, I know, Maisie. I know it's nice to, and it's nice to hear that, and it, it is the truth as well. But sometimes it's hard to get. You in, should, you, know? you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't knock yourself down because you played two games for Man United. Two games for Man United is like hundred games playing for whoever it is in the in the Premier League. Yeah. Uh, you should be really proud of what you've done, though. It's it's an achievement that not a lot of people have done. Not a lot of people have done it. It feels like I'm protecting. The thing is, I came through the youth ranks, you know, it's, it's even hard at that time to make it through the youth ranks because I didn't come here as a 27-year-old that's going to improve the first team. I came as academy player. I was 17, 18 when I was training with all you. 17, 18. Yeah. Now, people getting hyped up in under-23s and I'm thinking, listen, with my suit, I'm still better than these. You know, sometimes, th- that's the thing is sometimes when I sit with my negative thoughts, you know what I mean? And looking at the social networks, oh, you this and that, he's the next one. The step from the reserves to the first team is bigger than people oh, think. Incredible. If you're great in under-23s, automatically, you're not going to go into United's first team. You have to be special. You have to be a Marcus Rashford. You have to be a Mason Greenwood. Mm. And those people, they don't grow on trees. No. No. They should be happy if they go to a championship side and become regular. That's a shock. When you go from United thinking that you're all that in under-23s, and then every single one, majority of the people I see now, always like, loan is being recalled. So they come back now because they don't play regularly, and that's what they need to concentrate on and ask themselves, listen, if I'm this good, why can I not play in championship? Why am I not playing in League One mm-hmm. or even League Two, some mm-hmm. of them? You know what I mean? But they think it's like, oh, it's coach's fault. The different type of football. For me, if you're a good footballer, you can actually go into, like I did in Plymouth, under Tony Pulis and hit diagonals, but still a big, good player. You still can be useful. You don't have to play a Barcelona, Tiki Taka, United from 99 football to be part of something. This is the United way and I'm not used to it. No, if you're a good footballer, you adapt. You see things and you use your talent to actually become a regular, especially when you're 19, 20. I don't think you should put yourself down, Bob. I really don't. You shouldn't. You also mentioned loan moves there, and you did make quite a few loan moves in your time. But overall, you seem to have made lasting friendships here with some of your (laughs) academy graduates. You seem to make a good impression on Manchester as a city. And what was your relationship like with the fans as well? No, the support, it's always been a genuine relationship because everything I said is because I love the club. I love the passion. I always said to him, doesn't matter what you think about the coaching staff or the manager. If it was David Moyes, Van Gaal, Mourinho, Ole now. Listen, I want my team to win. I don't understand that there is actually supporters because they don't like a certain manager. They want the team or club to lose so they will be in the right. You know what I mean? It's like two different camps. I'm thinking, listen, Manchester United is bigger than all of us. United was here before we were born. United is going to be here when we die. So how can your love for a circuit manager be more important than club going forward, club winning games, no matter what you think is right or wrong? And that pisses me off, mm-hmm. you know, because we lost away last eight years since the last time we won the league in 2013. But you still have to see on the bright side, positive side, like we say, Man United will never die. We'll never, because we will always raise ourselves. We will always attract people, but also... Of course, we need to win trophies. We should never be content. We should never be happy just finishing fourth. Then we'll become an Arsenal like they were. 
you always have to set high standards, high goals. And I'm actually liking what I'm seeing with Nicky Butt, what he's doing with the, with the young players at, at the team, because that's what we lost. First years after Sir Alex, we lost our academy. Looking at some results after that, under-19s and all that, I was ashamed. Under-23s get relegated. Under-19s, they're last in the bottom. And how can you build a team then? Hmm. Now we're starting gradually to build something. So even if Ole stays or leaves, we're in a better place than we were. We're at least on the right course somewhere. We are seeing the values of what we liked when we start following United. Because without our academy, without our graduates, we're not the same club anymore. We will always buy players, but we will never be a Chelsea. We'll never be a buying club. We are a long-term project always, and the titles will come. Lovely. Nicely put. Wonderfully said. Um, we haven't got absolutely loads of time left, so I just thought it would be good to ask you yeah. about your conversations with Sir Alex and about your decision eventually to leave the club and how you felt about that and, in the end, whose decision that was. It was, it was both of us. Uh, we sat down there and uh, he said to me, listen, I'm sending you up to Scotland. And I was thinking Scotland, oh, Don, oh, Livingston and all these, uh, Ross County and St. Johnston. I was like, I can play with my suit in the, them clubs. That was my thought. And I said, listen, uh, Rangers are interested. Uh, I'm sending you up to Alex McLeish. I had Alex McLeish. Uh, he will take care of you. And this is your last chance. He said to me, if you're going to become a full international, if you're going to use this talent, this is your last chance. If you do, don't do it now, you will still have food on your table because of your talent, but you never achieve things you could do now because you're still only 22. So he sends me up to Rangers. Two days after I come to Rangers, I start against Celtic at Celtic Park in the quarterfinals <laughs> of the Cup. It's crazy. Two days. Because uh, McLeish told, Alex told me, I said, are you ready? And I was like, yeah, I'm ready. I was not ready, but I said, I'm, I'm ready. And I thought he was going to put me in the squad. But when he took that big block, them days it was like the block when you saw your names, if you play or not. It's not like digital now. And I saw, I said, BD. I said, there's not a lot of BDs here. I said, that's me. Oh, so I said, listen, instead of being happy, I was starting. I was like, left wing. Effing hell. I don't want to play a left <laughs> wing because Celtic, they had this Didier Gath. Oh. Listen, he, he didn't have no skill or nothing. His touch was, and I mean, it was like passing to a tree, but he was rapid. <laughs> He was so fast, it was like a chasing Usain Bolt all game. And inside of him, he had Bobo Balde, the biggest centre-half in the world. Mm. But I had a really good game, and I was subbed after 70, 75 minutes. I remember getting a man of the match for Rangers. We lost 2-1. And then I started first four games in January in the league before my first big injury came. And when that big injury came against Livingston at home, end of January, then I said to myself, I'm finished. And I was 23 years old. I said to myself, I'm finished. What did you do, Bob? Uh, the muscle from my hip, from the bone, went. Tore off. And this injury, Maisie, they told me, only happens to old men. Are we talking about bodies that are 60, 70 years old? Because my you, body was so destroyed. Life, though, aren't you? Zero to 23. Yeah, amazing. But the thing is, was they really wanted to make the grade because I got a phone call from the national team coach just before the Livingston game. And the thing is, was the qualifiers for the World Cup was, were starting and the World Cup was year after 2006. And I played so well during the beginning that actually having people now that not see me playing Rangers thought hey, this, this guy was a flop. He only played four game, five games. But it's because they didn't see me at the time. I started every game. But when that injury came, and it was an injury that put me out all season, 
I said to myself that, nah, this, this, this is not going to go. And that's how I went to Plymouth. And I had fights with Tony Pulis, with Ian Holloway. I was injured. I was in and out. And then it came, I mean, cut long story short that I just said to myself, I, I have to go. I have to go home. I have to go to my boys' room. I have to move back into my parents. I have to play football in Sweden. Mm. I know with my talent that I could just stand in the center circle and be good. I don't have to push myself. We won everything there is to win here in Sweden. People thought I was brilliant, but I was shit, according to myself because I didn't do nothing. I hit crosses. I couldn't move. I was injured all the time. I couldn't train properly. So my body experienced so many injuries during that time. That, and I was so off that every time I actually tried to do the right thing, next setback came. And after Rangers was the start point, Plymouth, the next injury, when I actually did really well. I remember December 2006, I scored three goals in three games. I was never a goal scorer, but three goals in three games. I got a championship player of the month. Uh, Palace put a bid in. Palace puts a bid in that Plymouth hopefully would accept in January. I got injured on Boxing Day. I broke my jaw, my nose, and this bone on the, underneath. So I have titanium plates from my nose down to the cheekbones and all that. So, What did you do to break your face? Now, the thing is, I got an elbow. And the funny part was that the, the, the person that elbowed me was a friend of mine that played for West Bromwich Albion. And his name was Jonathan Greening. We played together. Uh, it was, it was oh, Jonathan. Got an elbow and it was just... I was out for nine months. I think first game after that, it took me 13 months from that happened to start my first game. And it was my last game against Cardiff for Plymouth though. And I said to Ollie though, Ollie, Ian Holloway, I have to go home. I have to go home. I cannot do this anymore. You know, I was off with me. I was walking into the dressing room. I said, what am I doing here? Home, park, look at this little dressing room. Look at the players. You know, I always find something negative. I was not going to be here. I was not meant to be here. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I got started getting frustrated with myself. Because I never took care of my body. And then depression, anxiety. I mean, I don't, wish, I don't wish any young player to be quiet about actually problems they're experiencing. It was taboo at that time because you were not mad enough if you spoke about your problems. Mm. But what is being a man? It is. For me, being a man is being honest. Being a man is actually to kind of share a tear as well and take help. I was ashamed of taking help because I was going to be branded as, as weak. I had anxiety and depression that I didn't sleep for days. I never took any drugs, but I could take whiskey for breakfast. That's a true story. Two, three days with no sleep, sitting there looking yourself in the mirror, eyes underneath my, just falling down. And that was the time. And I said to myself, I'm going to destroy myself. I have to move home, even if I had the long contract left. So I moved home, I moved to my parents, I took my same old room because we moved to bigger, I bought them a nice place and I took my boys' room with all my posters I had when I was 11, 12. So that saved me in a way, you know what I mean? It, it, mm. it saved me and it started defining me as a, as a person, you know? So it was not just about a talent, it was too many things happened from age 10, 11 till I was 28 and moved back home. And it still does, you know? I'm still affected by it, but... I'm strong. I can, I, I can handle it. But it's just tough speaking about it like this for the first time in an open, in an open forum, in a way. You know what I mean? So It's nice that you've spoke about it, though, but you have to realize that. And nice that ah. you, you said at the start, really, of the podcast that you don't have any regrets and you still stand by that. Because everything that you do along the way makes you the person you are today. 
Yeah, it is, Helen, because I'm still standing here. I can put my suit on. I can put my tie on. I can I can be a pundit. I can speak about football. Uh, I can help younger people here in here in Sweden. Um, I can show them that being yourself in old times. That is the only thing that matters, that people shouldn't judge your relationship, shouldn't affect you in a way. You should be strong, you know, like to handle all that is not easy, especially for uh, girls, boys growing up, uh, having dreams, having plans. Mm -hmm. And with these old social networks and the lies they're spreading and the lives they're living and how good it is. I mean, it's just a fake thing. You have to build build yourself. And if you start early, then you can become a strong person and I'm trying to be myself I've always been myself I know I can talk a little bit too much um, I know but everybody that's met me can actually they don't see anything that's fake mm -hmm. and that was that's what warms me that warms me it's my opinions it's my words some people can get offended by it but that's my life story you know there's plenty more I mean this chapter we can go on for three days so many things that happen but at the same time, you know, like when depression, anxiety hits you and you're there all, all alone, doesn't matter what you earn, doesn't matter if you're no. a footballer, doesn't matter if people think you have an easy life. Because I always said, like some of my friends, yeah, you have it easy. You go to, you listen, well paid and all that, well known. But where were you when I was 11, 12, 15, 16, 19, 20? Did you call me or ask me how I was? No, but you wanted to party with me. You know what I mean? You wanted to go on vacations with me to Vegas, to my bay and all that. Were you proper friends then? No, proper friend is there. Because he sees you as a human being, not somebody they can actually use just to see the good life. You don't call me when it's my birthday, but you want two tickets to Old Trafford. F off. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's the kind of people I've actually taken away. But as I said to you, I mean, having Danny Weber, John O'Shea so close to me during them years, he helped me, but not becoming even worse in a way, even if he was bad. But they helped me not become worse. You know what I mean? So... I'm happy we have them relations because Maisie knows not many friends you have in football, not many friends you keep in touch with when you leave their no, dressing room. So. It's true. So true, mate. So true. So, yeah. Listen, Bob, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. It has. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm glad it, if, if this has actually helped you get it out into the open. Uh, no. But, you know, it's something that's, that you've got off your chest because it seems to me that you've needed to say things like this and people will realise, hmm. and it's good. It is, and I'm, I'm so glad yeah. that you're doing well for yourself, Paul. Um, I'm, I appreciate that, Missy. I mean, you know, I, I never liked it. You know, I mean, can, I, you I, get, I hate... can you get us two tickets for next week? <laughs> I've always, always had problems to taking compliments. You know, I never, I, I never liked. I like, I like hearing praise, but I always have difficulties actually to taking that in. You know, the only thing yeah. I want to uh, share is is my story, uh, my thoughts, and hopefully, uh, people can see a different side. Yeah, but people can see maybe a different side. You know. Instead of you judging as a player why you failed, why you never succeeded. Bojan, you didn't fail. There's so much more. Don't look at yourself as no, a failure because you didn't fail. No, no, I know, I know, I know. It's, I mean, coming, coming and working with you, and coming to Old Trafford and saying hi to people and being appreciated like I was on our tours with MUTV. I think I saw to Matt as well that people saw a different side of a footballer. They saw a human being. So, yeah. I cannot do I cannot do anymore. You know, it's it is difficult, but I appreciate your words, Maisie, because we never spoke in this way before. No. We always laughed, we had jokes. Of course. Yeah. It's so, nice. It's nice. I always knew you had the heart somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we've got to the end of this chat and you don't want to punch him. <laughs> yeah, usually the guests yeah. have the opposite opinion. <laughs> Next time we meet, we'll have a rumble. 
<laughs> no, it is. Make up for lost time. Yeah. <laughs> Just one more question before you go. Danny yeah. Weber obviously recommended you to us. Yeah. Which former teammate would you recommend for our podcast? I will say John O'Shea. If Shays has not been on yet. Hasn't no. Been. no, he hasn't. But I did ask him and he agreed, but he's a busy man. Yeah, Shays or Fletch? Fletch yeah, has been Fletch. on, yeah. No, Fletch has been on. Yeah, but Shays is, because Shays is a wonderful, wonderful life story as well. And he did, he played his cards, right? Uh, he had a wonderful family. He's been through a lot. He's been through the youth ranks. He came from Waterford, you know, and he's really lived the dream. So he, mm. he has more to him than just John O'Shea, the footballer, the versatile mm -hmm. one. He's played in every single position, but it's his heart off the pitch that I would like to hear, you know what I mean? His thoughts, mm -hmm. the way he saw things and what you need as a young kid to be in right lane to actually succeed. And apart from giving you a haircut, are there any other stories that we should specifically ask him about? Uh, yeah, uh, you should ask him. When, uh, when Boyan came back from Red Star Belgrade and he called you and he said there's a lot of interest for him and people putting bids in and it was close, close end of August 2004, and he asked you to stay for two nights before he actually moved and accepted this bid. Ask him how many days did Boyan really stay at your place and lived with you in Yvonne? <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll do that. Brilliant. I stayed for six months. Six months? <laughs> I stayed for six months. <laughs> I was cutting his lawn. I cut, I cut his grass. I asked him about that. I stayed for six months. That's I said, amazing. two nights, please. I said, I don't want to rent anything. I stayed for six months. I lived with Shazie and Yvonne. He <laughs> <laughs> loved that. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Cheers, Bob. Thank you, Bojan. Oh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I appreciate thank that. Thank you. Take care, Paul. Love you. Bye-bye. Guys, what a great story that was. That was incredible. That could have went on for about five hours, which I did think that could have possibly happened. Yeah, I feel like we could have spoken about his childhood forever. Yeah, we didn't even talk about any of the other clubs, really, that he no. played for. I think probably that's... And I, and I, I mean, I don't know. But I think the amount of time that we had, I think we spoke about the bits that he probably most would have liked to have spoken about and that maybe for people listening would have found most interesting. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know because we, you're right, we didn't really ask what happened. But I think his start to life was so extraordinary. And also, you know, it's, it's quite hard to talk about that, isn't it? Yeah, of course. And he even said that himself, didn't he? Yeah. That he doesn't very often open up about those kind of things. Scary, isn't it? And you don't, we don't realise how much that affects people. Yeah. You know, we have no idea. Yeah, you don't even think about it, do you? you never even think, and he said like with footballers, you don't even think about it. You just think, right, he's been signed from there. Is he good? You don't give any consideration to what's happening in his life. No. And it always goes back to the words Mickey Thomas said. You know, people don't realise what goes on so in true. footballers' lives. Yeah, and that's it. Maybe this podcast, you know, over the course of the series will give people... Yeah. But more empathy towards footballers. So. I'm not sure whether yeah. people have empathy towards footballers, but as people rather than the players. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, I think that's, I think from the messages we get from people, uh, I think that's what people uh, maybe get from this podcast because we don't focus too much on, on the football. Like we talk about bits and their journey, but I feel like we're trying to get to the person rather than the career. Maisie, he talked a lot about you know, he wasn't blowing his own trumpet, but saying how good he was compared to the other players at the time. Mm -hmm. Is that the talent that you had seen in him? Did you see the little glimpses of self-destruction, maybe? Um, would you call it? Bojan always, always used to seem angry for some reason. He never used to you know, put anything towards it. 
But now listening to his story there, you can actually understand. To go through what he's gone through is incredible at such an early age. And if you're not scarred for life because of that, I don't know whether you're a, you're a strange person or you've got some superpower because that would actually scar you for life. Try, you know, crossing the road and having people shoot at you and then how on earth can your mind take that in as a kid and not be affected by it? Do you remember the talent that he had at that time? Oh, he was a wonderful footballer. So skillful. But as as Bo said through the thing, I would have a go at him because you knew he was capable of getting to those levels that he needed to get to. The talent he had, he could have done so much more, but having listened to him, you now can understand the demons in his head because I'm sure anybody would have them. Do you not think it's funny, though, in the introduction you said it'll be interesting to see because I would say he might have some regrets or done things differently, but he doesn't? No, he doesn't. Um, Were you surprised at that? Yeah, because because of the talent he had, I would have honestly thought he would have done better with his career. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he picked up a few injuries. We've all had injuries and some of them are career-threatening and obviously that one was. And I think when... I think as well, leaving, leaving home... The fact that he's actually after had to leave his parents again to come to another country, all that. He just wants his home love. And and sometimes being a young kid and being through what he's been through, maybe I don't even know if he spoke to Shazy about it or to Danny about it, his upbringing. That must have affected him so much. And, you know, to do what he did, go gambling and drinking and everyone knowing him in Manchester, obviously he's... He's not gone down the right path, but I don't know, maybe it's just an escapism from for him to try and get out of where his head actually was. Yeah. It is an extraordinary story. Extraordinary. It is. Um, I suppose uh, what we'll do now is have a look at some of the messages that you guys have sent us, uh, and then we'll say goodbye. Yep. I've got one from Rosa Donovan who says, Hello, David, Helen and Sam. I'm a huge Manchester United fan from Dorset. All my family are, except my granddad, he's a West Ham supporter, when they had fixtures against Man United, my grandma wouldn't let him sit on the same sofa as her and kept her fingers crossed the entire game. Our love for United all started when my grandma, uh, she loved Manchester United more than anyone else I knew. She was always someone I looked up to as a role model, living in times when females liking football wasn't a thing, but but that never stopped her. Sadly, she passed away in August 2017. Through all the memories we have together, watching Manchester United always makes me feel close to her. I've been a listener to the podcast right from the start. Every episode I listen to, I can feel my grandma with me. It's quite special. I wish she could have got to listen to all the amazing stories that we discover each week. This podcast really is so much more than just a podcast or something to listen to to pass the time. She goes on to say she's recently suffered a serious injury and that she's struggling at the moment, but that she's recently developed a new skill and she's created something for us. She said, I just wanted to give something back to you guys for getting me through these very dark times. And she sent us some illustrations um, and we're going to put a link to her Instagram page in the post so you can check out the illustrations that she sent in uh they're really cool little graphics and she's even included producer tasker whose name got brought up a lot if you heard uh boyan in that talking about matt when he said oh, i had a conversation with matt he's talking about matt tasker our producer um prior to coming on doing the show and there's even one of his little bearded face with us uh, and they're really nice um and rosa thank you so much for listening and um we're really grateful that uh you know that you sent those to us and that you feel that we're in any way, shape or form, any small comfort um, when life is difficult. Thank you very much indeed. And if you do want to bother clicking, 
It's rd.illustrations on Instagram. It's very easy to remember. Nice. So do check that out. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, next email is from Sean in Dublin. My name's Sean. I was just emailing to let you know how great these podcasts have been during these lockdowns that have stretched on for nearly a year now. I started listening back in March of last year and have enjoyed every single one. My favourites have to be Patrice's and the Gallows as they show so much passion and love towards the club. And on the topic of passion for the club, I suggest a great player you could do a Zoom meeting podcast with who is Ander Herrera. Ander had a great career at United under different managers and had great experiences, including winning Player of the Year for United. It'd be great to have him feature on one of the episodes. Thank you very much indeed, Sean. That's lovely. Thank you. I've got one from Jonathan Edgerton. This is, I've just read this as I'm holding it, and this is an extraordinary message. Currently in mad traffic in Washington, D.C. during the protests. Figured while I have the time, I'd say cheers for making commute so much better. But now we know that those protests were really serious. This is mad that you thought you'd send us this message, Jonathan. Um, would love to hear from Johnny Evans, but completely understand how hard it must be to get hold of him. Yeah, thank you. It's been a nightmare, hasn't it, Maisie? Shocking. Terrible. We're trying all the time. We just uh, we just can't find that link to, to Johnny Evans. And I mean, what a career he's had and what an interesting guy he must be. But we just don't know. We just obviously is a very private guy who... Um, who, who, who keeps himself to himself and we just we just cannot find that link uh, he also says we'd love to hear from Gerard Piquet too as I think his outlook would be very unique thanks all John John I imagine it'll be easier to get hold of Gerard Piquet in Barcelona during COVID-19 than it would be to get hold of Johnny Evans um, thank you very much hope you stayed safe um, during the protests mad that he sent that during the protests yeah as if you know he's obviously just chilling in the traffic probably hours long yeah uh, Helen have you heard of have you got any links to Johnny Evans do you know him no, you know what? We'll have to work on that one. Yeah, yeah. Keep your ear to the ground. See if you can see if you can hear anything. I will. I will. <laughs> uh, if you want to email us, you can. It's unitedpodcast.mayunited.co.uk. That address is in the show notes. Uh, leave us a review. Uh, give us a rating. Do all the nice things, and we will see you on the next one. Thank you for listening. Thank you. See you later, troops.